It's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Campus House, and uh, I have the honor of wrapping up our sermon series. We're going to be in 2 Kings today. We're going to actually have a lot of the text on the screen. The series that we're in is Elijah and Elisha, the naturally supernatural work of God. Um, In all honesty, I was pretty daunted by the text that we're going to explore today because it is a crazy story. It is really intense. Um, There are parts that are heartbreaking and violent. And as I was reflecting this morning, those things were making me a little bit nervous. But then I remembered that people love Game of Thrones. So this is like (laughs) Game of Thrones in the Bible. And uh, it's going to be intense. So we're going to look at the naturally supernatural work of God. We're going to see how God is at work in the midst of an unfaithful nation, that is his people, Israel, in the midst of their unfaithfulness, in the midst of uh, open idolatry, worship of false gods, that, uh, and a massive assault from one of their enemies, a rival kingdom, we're going to see how God is able to break into that. I think there's actually a lot of rich stuff in this story, and it's going to be good. But in order for us to be able to understand what's going on in the story, I'm going to give some background. So we got some history. Jehoram, or Joram, depending on your translation, uh, is the king of Israel. Here is his lovely uh, coin. And he was an evil king. He is son of the most evil king in Israel's history, Ahab. He is not as evil of his da- as his dad, but not as evil does not equal good. <laughs> so Joram had a few moments of brilliance in his career where he obeyed. Uh, he tore down a giant idol, but maintained idol worship and taught Israel to obey idols. He listened to Elisha, the prophet, once or twice, who we'll hear about more. But uh, he was a bad dude. He taught Israel idolatry, the worship of false gods. And this is a really big deal in the Old Testament. I mean, it's a big deal throughout all of the Bible, but it's a big deal. And I was reflecting on idolatry and why it is such a big deal, because I can get kind of callous talking about idolatry and thinking about it. It's in the Bible. It's just a word we read. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, they're lighting some incense to another god, or they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. And... But idolatry is actually a really big deal. Um, God has it in his word to worship no other God before him. And when you look at the types of worship that happened in the ancient Near East of these other gods, the act of worshiping these other gods is not only sinful, but like how you worship them is by sinning. Okay? So like, it's crazy. The worship of other gods includes all this weird sexual stuff and literally child sacrifice, where people are going in and sleeping with temple prostitutes, like having sex in these pagan temples as part of the ritual. We say, okay, that's weird. But then you bring it down and appropriate it into your life, and you realize what you're doing is you're putting your marriage aside, and you're cheating on your spouse to get something from this other god. 
And so it like destroys your marriage. If anyone's been cheated on, they understand how painful that is or been betrayed by someone close to you. And so you're literally taking what's most precious, a God-given gift of family, and you're putting it on the altar to get something from this false god. There's also this god, Molech, uh, which is one of the gods they worshipped, where they would light a fire and literally sacrifice their babies to this god to get something. Idolatry is a big deal in the Bible because it is horrendous. They are worshiping other gods by taking the most precious gifts that God gives them and giving them to another false god, destroying the fabric of their society, destroying the gifts that God gives them for the sake of their momentary pleasure, for the hope that maybe they're going to be taken care of by this false god. So idolatry is a mess, and Jehoram is responsible for teaching his people to obey false gods. What's a mess about this, though, is that, is that God promises if we, if Israel, his people, kept their commandments and worshiped only God, that he would take care of them. And throw in the Davidic kingdom and in Solomon's kingdom, for the most part, you see Israel following God, not worshiping idols, worshiping God alone, and they prosper. And then trying to hang on to that prosperity, they make sacrifices to other gods. They try to, to take their futures into their own hands and worship these false gods and in fact then lose it. One of the ways that God corrects his people from their idolatry in the Old Testament is removing his hand of protection from them. And as he removes his hand of protection, as they are seeking protection from these false gods, other kingdoms tend to move in and conquer Israel. The conqueror de jour is King Ben-Hadad. Uh, he was a Syrian leader. Um, ruled over Damascus. Uh, Aram was the name of the nation at that point, and they swooped in and were destroying Israel. The other character, kind of background that we're going to look at is Elisha. Elisha is God's prophet of the day. We've been looking at them. He is faithful. He listens to God. He is God's mouthpiece to the nation. He's God's mouthpiece to the kings. At this point, he tells them what's going on. Uh, sometimes it's like, hey, Aram's going to attack you, like we saw last week or a couple weeks ago. And uh, sometimes it's like, hey, you guys are really messing this up. Um, so we have Elisha, God's prophet. He's faithful, and he speaks the word of God to God's people. So, background. Bad king, idolatry is a mess. Bad king is teaching idolatry to his people. This guy, Ben-Hadad, is coming in to destroy Israel, and Elisha is the faithful witness. That's where we start our text today, is in 2 Kings 24, 6, sorry, 2 Kings 6, 24. <clears throat> And so sometime later, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army and marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. As the siege continued, famine in Samaria became so great that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dung, dove's dung for five shekels of silver. So they're describing what is happening what is happening is there is a massive famine. 
because this other king has come in and laid siege to the city that's surrounded it so no supplies can come in and no people can come out. They're completely cut off from their supply lines and so they are starving inside of their walled city. This is letting us know how starving they are that a great deal of money is spent on a donkey's head and people were literally spending a huge amount of silver on dove poop to eat which is disgusting, but it was really dramatic. They were in a horrible place. What's interesting is this starts off saying sometime later, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army against them. If you were here last week, we'll see that King Ben-Hadad's army was raiding in Israel, that through Elisha, he, God blinded this army, brought them into Samaria. They gave them a feast, let them go, and they stopped raiding for a period of time. So there is peace for a little bit. But Israel continued in their idolatrous ways, continued to put their faith in non-gods and not seek the Lord, even though he demonstrates his power to deliver and save. So... As they continued in their disobedience, God was faithful to his covenant that if they disobey, then God would bring correction. He would remove his hand of protection from them, and they would walk in difficulty. And so here they are in difficulty. The king of Aram has come back, laid siege to them, and they're starving. Next, we have an incredibly disturbing story. Even more disturbing than eating donkey heads and dung. But what we see in this part of the story is that in the midst of the intensity of what's happening, Israel's heart and character is being exposed. Now the king was, of Israel was walking on the city wall. A woman cried out to him, help my lord, my king. He said, no, let the lord help you. How can I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? He's saying, I don't have any food. But then the king asked her, what's your complaint? And she said, this woman said to me, give up your son. We'll eat him today and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son and we will eat him. But she had hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now since he was walking on the city wall, the people could see that he had sackcloth on underneath his suit, uh, underneath. And he said, so may God do to me and more if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphath, stays on his shoulders today. So he dispatched a man from his presence. We can see a nation that has been conditioned by idolatry, conditioned by this idea of sacrificing what is closest and most important to them, God's gifts to them for the sake of their own pleasure and own well-being. To eat one's child is so far from what is natural and what is good that we can see the corrupting influence of this false worship that has made its way into God's people. That it was somehow reasonable in the midst of difficulty to cook one's own son and to barter with another person's son in order to sustain oneself. But this is a picture of the kind of idolatry that was happening in Israel that they were sacrificing their children to gods to secure their crops, to secure their future, to secure their well-being. And so this is that type of worship that was shaping their hearts, brought down and made manifest in the midst of a hard time. It is disgusting. 
And the king's character is also seen that in the midst of a hard time, in the midst of difficulty, what he turns to is murder. Rather than consulting God's prophet, he is angry. He sees that God must be causing this difficulty, and so he's going to kill God's man. What we see is murder and murder. We see the condition of the heart of God's people in this story, and it's a mess. Idolatry revealed. So what happens next? Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Are you aware that this murderer has sent someone to take off my head? When the messenger comes, see that you shut the door and hold it closed against him. Is that not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the king came down and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I hope in the Lord any longer? So we have Elisha sitting in his house. The Lord lets him know that the king is sending out someone to kill him. And so he says, don't open the door. Kind of a natural thing. And the king asks in his murderous rage, he notices, he admits that this is from the Lord. He came down and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I hope in the Lord any longer? This king is not one that has shown a track record of hoping in the Lord. A few times, in midst of great difficulty, he has hoped in the Lord. He has, he has obeyed Elisha a couple times. He let this Ben-Hadad's army go, and he has put on sackcloth and torn his clothes, which is a sign of humility, of seeking, of lowering oneself and saying, I don't have what it takes. The king is in a place of humility, murderous evil man, but putting himself in a place of humility saying, what am I going to do? This is from the Lord. Why should I hope in him? And what's interesting is that question, finally consulting the Lord, finally asking the question of the man of God, why should I hope in the Lord? We get an answer. Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a measure of choice meal shall be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. This is economic speak for food is going to be cheap again. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, even if the Lord were to make, the window, make windows in the sky, how could such a thing happen? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat from it. The Lord promises through Elisha that he is going to deliver Israel as Israel has turned back to him as the king has turned and said, why should I hope in the Lord? Elisha says, oh, this is why. Tomorrow, everything is going to be cheap again. You're going to have food and things are going to be okay. So we zoom out from inside of the fortress and inside of the center place where the king and the prophets are talking. We zoom out and we place ourselves outside the city wall. 
where there are four leprous men outside the city gate. Lepers were sick. They had a skin disease that was contagious and eventually killed them. They were considered unclean, and so they weren't allowed to hang out with the rest of Israel. And so they're on the outside of the wall, hanging out in exile all by themselves, sick and outcast. And they said to one another, why should we just sit here until we die? If we say, let's enter the city, the famine is in the city. So it doesn't make sense to go into the city and we shall die there. But if we sit here, we'll also die. Therefore, let us desert to the Aramean camp. If they spare our lives, we'll live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they rose at twilight to go to the Aramean camp. But when they came to the camp, to the edge of the Aramean camp, there was no one there at all. So here's a really natural scene. The outcasts saying we're hungry. We're about to die. We go into the city, we're going to die because there's no food in the city. So let's go over to the bad guys and see if they won't kill us and maybe they'll give us some food. But they discover something really striking is that they go to this giant camp that's surrounding the city. And imagine this for a second. This siege has been going on for months, if not years. And so the Arameans have moved their entire army around this city and is completely encapsulating it with their army and with their camp. And so they've settled in. It's not like it's just like a few like Civil War tents and they're hanging out. Like they're entrenched. They're there for a long period of time. So they've got supplies for a giant army for a whole year. They've got probably like their royal people hanging out and wives and this whole like camelcade of people come along with the army and are set up around them waiting for Israel to surrender or starve to death. And so they show up and they don't find anyone there, which is really interesting. And so here's what happens next. We learn why there's no one there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that one said to another, the king of Israel has hired the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egypt's of Egypt to fight against us. So they flew away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp just as it was, and they fled for their lives. When these leprous men had come to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered into another tent and carried things off for it and went and hid them. So I don't know, I had this fantasy when I was a kid that I could walk into a store that had been like abandoned in the old west and you could go in and there's just everything and it was yours free for the taking. And so here they are living that strange kid's fantasy of walking into this giant city that is completely deserted and everything is for the taking. They went from having absolutely nothing, from having no food and no hope to becoming wealthy, enough gold that they can carry it off and hide it, changes of clothes, all the food that they can eat, all of what they can drink, an entire city's wealth at their disposal. Then as they were pillaging, they said to each other, what, are we, what we are doing is wrong. This is a day of good news. And if we are silent and wait until the morning light, we will be found guilty. Therefore, let us go to the king's household. 
So they came and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we went into the Aramean camp, but there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but horses tied and donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and proclaimed to the king's household, the king got up in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Arameans have prepared against. I think I went too far. Yeah, I did. So back up. Sorry, I'm not used to slides. Pause. And so they, leprous dudes went into the king's household and said, hey guys, here's the great news. There are donkeys, there is food, there is horses. All the enemy is gone and there's great wealth at our gates. It's exciting. They shared the good news. They realized what they were doing is wrong. They had tasted and seen of God's goodness. They had experienced the fact that they had been delivered and that they are no longer in famine. And so they shared the good news with the king's household. Now, what does the king do? The king got up in the night and said to his servants, I'll tell you what the Arameans have prepared against us. They know we're starving, so they left the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we will take them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, since those left here will suffer the fate of the whole multitude of Israel that have perished already. Let us send and find out. So they took two mounted men, and the king sent them after the Arameans' army, saying, Go and find out. And so they went after them as far as the Jordan. The whole way was littered with garments and equipment that the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. Here you get another glimpse of the poverty of this whole kingdom. They have like two horses left. And so they sent two dudes out on horses because that's all they had. They go, they explore, they get to see that all the way to the Jordan River, which is far in the border of their territory, is uh, just people tossing their stuff as they're running away to go as fast as they can, running away from this imaginary army. So then what happens? The people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a measure of choice meal was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate and the people trampled him to death in the gate. Just as the man of God had said, the king came down to him for when the man of God had said to the king, two measures of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a measure of choice meal for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain answered the man of God, even if the Lord were to make windows in the sky, how could such a thing happen? And he answered, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat from it. It did indeed happen to him and the people trampled him to death in the gate. So a redemptive ending to our story um, this morning. So what we have is the people are liberated. They get to go out of their city. Their starvation is over. They're plundering this city camp of their enemy, being restored with food and horses and donkeys and gold. They are delivered. So what in the world do we learn from this text? Okay, here's the story. Now, what are we going to do with this? So first lesson, first observation that I have is that idols do not save you. Here is a country that left their God, that went to serve an idol, and that idol, those idols did not save them. They actually led to their destruction. Sin at its core is deceitful. There is a promise that says you will get what you always wanted by sinning. 
Your life is incomplete. Wait, there's more. Do this thing that you know is wrong and you'll get everything that you always wanted. But sin is deceitful because its promise is a lie. Sacrifice your children to Molech and you will have prosperous harvests. And here we have the Israelites starving to death. It's a lie. I love this image. You want financial security for the rest of your life, so you go and you rob a bank because you want to be free from worry. Have all the money you want. So you go and you rob the bank and you've got your money. And if you don't get caught, you're going to be worried about being caught for the rest of your life. So the peace you are pursuing is gone. Or you get caught and you go to jail and now you're the opposite of free. Sin is deceitful. And ultimately, idols are a tool of Satan. John I don't know where I put that. Oh, well, John 10.10 10 tells us that the enemy comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. God has come to bring life and bring it abundantly. When we worship things other than God, when we put even good things in the place of God, when we put anything over and above God and worship that thing instead of God, it will ultimately destroy us. It will steal what is good in the promises of God. It will destroy us. There are people in my life who put family above everything else, who love family above everything else, and family is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a gift from God. But if family is the thing that you go after more than anything else, you will never be satisfied because your family will never fill the deep needs that you have in your heart and in your life. Maybe you put a relationship above God and say, I will be okay if I have this relationship, then everything will be okay. But that is idolatry putting it above God and saying, no, God plus this thing, then I'll be okay. Maybe it's financial security and wealth and we put that thing above God and we say, once I get to be financially independent, then I will be okay and life will go well for me. These are all good things and can be gifts from God. But when they are placed above Jesus himself and our worth and our okayness is determined by the presence of this thing, it becomes an idol and it sits in a position above God. And God tells us that Jesus has come to give us life and life abundantly. It's not that he has come to make us miserable. It's not that he has come to destroy our happiness. He has come to give us life. But ultimately, life is found, foundationally, life is found in Jesus. Idols don't save you, but God does. Here's an image of those lepers raiding a tent of the enemy. God is mighty to save. He keeps his promises. In this world, we will have trouble trusting and following Jesus. Following God does not mean we will be free from pain. It is the opposite of that. There will be pain in this world, but take heart. God has overcome this world. Jesus has overcome this world. He is bringing his life to us. He promises to sustain us in the hard times. He promises us to deliver us from evil, and he promises us life eternal. And we get to taste some of that now because he is good, and he is with us, and he will never leave us, and he will never forsake us.
but the fulfillment of his promises are ultimately upon Jesus' return. And so we look with expectation for the fullness when Jesus comes and puts sin to death finally, when he wipes away every tear. Our God is the God who can break the power of the enemy in an instant, who can break a siege, cause an army to flee, and turn the fortunes of a nation around in a single night. Our God is trustworthy, and he is a good place to put our hope. The third observation I want to make is, oh, here you go, Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. Our God is a victorious God who brings us to a place of life and brings us to a place of victory in him even in the midst of adverse circumstances. So the third observation is, I want you guys to observe who you relate to out of this story. So we're gonna review it. There's a lot of crazy characters and I have related to many of these people in different parts of our lives. None of us are evil Israeli kings, right? Like none of us are. But there are parts of their character that we can resonate with. The king only turned to the Lord in the midst of desperation or in the midst of like a mighty act of God. And the rest of the time, he pursued doing things on his own, seeking his own protection, his own significance, his own uh, wisdom from sources other than God. He only looked to God in the midst of distress or the miraculous. But the day to day, he turned to false gods and led his nation astray. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. And that's the story of the king of Israel. Maybe we're the unbelieving captain who heard the promise of God and scoffed at it, said, yeah, right. There's no way. Even if he did something amazing, opened up windows in heaven and poured grain down into Israel, it wouldn't happen. Maybe we're the unbelieving captain who despised the promise of God. Maybe we're an Israelite starving and suffering in the midst of an unrighteous kingdom. There are circumstances and persecution and dryness and difficulty in the season that we're in, and we are just trying to survive. Perhaps we are like the Israelite woman caught up in heartbreak and the unfairness of sin, feeling the the deceitfulness of sin, feeling the wrongness of sin, doing something that you wouldn't imagine yourself doing and feeling the repercussions of it. Perhaps we're like Elisha, feeling hunted for God, feeling misunderstood and unheard. Perhaps... We feel like the lepers. And I resonate the most with the lepers as I was reflecting on this this morning. I really feel like these guys because they are a mess. They're sick. They're weak. They're outcast. And then, and they're starving to death. And then they stumble upon riches unimaginable. They stumble on all this food and all this money and all these resources and all this hope. And they have this amazing quote, we're doing what's wrong. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, we will be found guilty. Therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. 
I feel like stumbling upon the kingdom of God, living inside of the reality of Jesus' reign and rule, I feel like a leper who should not be as rich as he is, who should not be fed as much as he is, but I have stumbled across the riches of God's and cannot keep silent, that God has done a mighty thing, that God is mighty to save, that he is good, and I cannot keep silent about this good news. The good news that we do not serve a king that is a bad king or a false king, that Jesus is the kind of king that we hope for, that doesn't come to kill or steal or destroy, but comes to give us life and life abundantly. A kind of kingdom that is different, one that does not require us to give up the gifts of God in order to get more from him. It's not one that calls for undue sacrifice. We live in a kingdom that is different, one that says Jesus paid it all, that Jesus paid the price that we are, have all sorts of iniquity. We fall short in all sorts of ways, but we have a Savior that is strong enough and smart enough and good enough to deal with all of our shortcomings, no matter who we are. If we are like the king who only turns to God in desperation and mostly seeks their, their own course and to direct themselves or looks other places than God, we have a God in Jesus who has made the way for us to receive his goodness and his wisdom and his care. If we are like the unbelieving captain who have scoffed at the works of God. We have a Jesus who bore the punishment for that. And while we were still enemies, he died for us so that we can live. And he extends his hand and says, come to me, even if you scoff, I have paid the price. The Israelite who is suffering in the dry ground, who is suffering under an unrighteous system, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is the living water that will satisfy. If you're like the Israelite woman with a terrible past and feeling the weight of the deceitfulness of sin, we have a Savior that has paid the price, who has paid the cost, who can forgive us, that sinfulness. Bind up our wounds and make us new. If we are like Elisha, because Jesus calls us friends, and I already talked about the lepers. But we have a different sort of kingdom. So what do we do if we find ourselves in one of those positions and we hear this good news that it is different? It is simple to move from the camp of one of these people into a place of reconciliation with God. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. It's simple. It is repent and believe. Repentance is an act not of saying I'm sorry for sins. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is not saying sorry. It might include saying sorry, but repentance is an acknowledgement of our ways and a turning from them. It, yes, it is an acknowledgement. I screwed up, but it is also a turning to say, God, would you show me the way? I screwed up. Would you show me the way? I can't navigate this myself. Would you show me the way? I exchanged your glory for the glory of something else. Would you forgive me? And Lord, would you show me the way forward? 
It is a turning to God and a walking in His way. It is a repent and believe that Jesus is who He says He is. He is as good as He says He is. That He is trustworthy and that we can take His word seriously. We can take His invitation seriously. We can test it out. And how do we believe? My favorite prayer in the Bible, I think, is, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. It's that tenuous prayer of faith that says, I feel like the Lord is asking me to lay this down or stop believing this or start believing this or walk in this direction or turn away from this pattern or let this relationship go. I don't, one of those things, and we say, Lord, I believe. Would you help me in my unbelief? And it's a step of faith to walk in the direction that you feel like God is calling you. Every Sunday we take communion here as a reminder of the kind of king that we serve. A reminder that this is not for us to do on our own. That this is not about our own strength and it's not about our own righteousness and it's not about our own ability to get it right. That it is about a savior who is good enough to give himself for us to exchange his sinless perfection for our sinfulness who offers himself as a sacrifice instead of asking for our sacrifice, who gives himself up so that we, who gives up his own life so that we might live. We serve a different kind of king, one who took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And took the cup and poured it out and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The blood that speaks a better word than all the sacrifice. The final sacrifice. The righteousness in Jesus' blood. And so if you are a Christian, we invite you to take the bread and the cup to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to take the strength that he offers us in his body and the forgiveness that he offers us in his blood. If you're not a Christian, don't worry about taking communion. There's more to talk about. So please feel free to come and talk to us. We'd love to share what life in Christ looks like. So go ahead and take communion, and then we're going to sing a song together. I'm going to pray for us before we take communion. Father, thank you so much that you are a different sort of God. You're not like the other ones. The exchange of value is sin for righteousness death for life, beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, praise for heaviness, that this, God, you, you just unequivocally move life and love and joy in our direction, and you take death and sinfulness and destruction from us and carry it yourself. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid it all. Thank you that you did it all, and thank you that you invite us into your life with you. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters today as we contemplate this, that you would give them by your spirit the power to repent and believe, to repent from wherever we're screwing it up, wherever we're falling short, wherever we're not walking in the goodness that you died to give us, the fullness that you have offered us, Lord. Would you give us the power to repent, to turn back to you and say, Lord, what is the way to go? And would you give gifts of faith by your spirit? to help us believe that your ways are actually higher than our ways, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that you are wiser than we are, that you are better than we are, that you have nothing but love towards us, nothing but care towards us. 
that what you have to offer us is your overwhelming love poured out on the cross and poured out daily through your spirit, love. But Lord, would you help us to experience that today as we take communion and remember you. Oh, to grace, how great.